History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. No hits, deep tracks only. Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten. We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories. I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. This is History's B-Side. Today's B-Sider is The Dogs of War. You know, I'm mad at you. Why are you mad at me? I'm not mad at you, I guess. I'm more jealous of you. Because I've been looking at our numbers, and it seems like some of your episodes, at least lately, have been doing a lot better than mine. Which, (laughs) maybe you're just picking better, more interesting topics than me, or maybe you're better at presenting them than me. So... I mean, I don't think that's true. I feel like I've had some duds. I mean, I, not across the board, but there's definitely some uh, some better ones and some worse ones. Well, I wanted to play to the people here and uh, <laughs> pick a topic that I thought would be popular with our listeners, because apparently I can't compete with 90s pop music or French wine or... We haven't really seen how this one plays out yet, but I imagine Disney will be a popular topic. So yeah, this week, I decided to reach out to the dog people. The dog people. Everybody loves dogs. Who doesn't love dogs? I know a couple people that don't, but, you know, I think that's like one of the 20 things on the sociopathic diagnostic <laughs> manual. Jeez. I'm kidding for the dog non-lovers you're fine they're probably just allergic turn off the podcast (laughs) (laughs) especially if you're allergic this one comes with dog fur (laughs) but we are you know we proudly display our dogs maybe not intentionally but they've made some appearances in the backgrounds of quite a few of our recordings here Mm -hmm. is uh barley in the room with you he is he's still barely awake but he's doing it (laughs) I feel like that's just his, you know, regular existence. (laughs) Odie is not in here with me, but that was his choice. I allowed him to, been allowing him to kind of hang out when we've been recording, but today he chose not to be with me, which is fine. A little upset because this topic made me think of him, but it's fine. (laughs) How rude. (laughs) Right before we got on here, we both took our dogs for a walk right yep in the rain it's raining here too i was just gonna say that (laughs) yep welcome to fall how does barley handle with that he's fine with it if it's raining really hard he tries to make the walk go faster but he doesn't really care about the rain too much odie and maybe he's just kind of prissy but he hates the rain (laughs) (laughs) like you can just see it on it. He has short hair, so like it's really not that bad, but you can see it on his face that when he's like soaking wet, he just like shuts down. And it, oh like he's God. fine if it's like lightly raining. Like today, it's only really sprinkling right now, but um, <laughs> last week it was like pouring down rain. Like we had tornado warnings, and I thought we had a short break, so I tried to take him for a quick walk just like around the block or something. Because you know how he is. Like if he doesn't get a walk, he just terrorizes the house because he's so energetic. Yeah. So. I tried to take him for a quick walk, stepped out of the garage, and it was just, like, downpour, like, torrential. Nice. That's great. (laughs) I was like, it's fine. We'll go quick. We'll just run around the block real quick. I got to the end of the street, and he stopped. He sat down and would not continue moving (laughs) and made me turn back around. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Barley doesn't like going in deep water, and he won't walk in puddles, but that's kind of a convenience for me, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) It took a long time to get him to like go in water. Like we there's a dog park beach that's not too far from here and we had to like coax him into the water by gradually throwing his ball closer and closer to it until we like accidentally threw the ball in the water and he had to go get it. <laughs> I don't know that he ever actually like <laughs> swam in it, but he did at least like run through the water a little bit by the end of it. Yeah. He also likes to lay in mud, which I think 
he shares that with Barley. Yeah, Barley definitely loves the mud. I have so many pictures of him. He looks like a pig. He'll just find like a muddy <laughs> puddle and just sit in it and roll back and forth to coat himself. <laughs> so, I mean, our listeners have heard a lot about us. I guess we could introduce our dogs. Like, um, I'll let you go first, but both of our dogs are rescues and a little bit of a mixed breeds. But tell us a little bit about Barley other than, you know, what we've been talking about so far. Yeah. Barley is a chonky, large, uh, lab border collie, German shepherd, pit bull plus mix. Um, he's got a lot of different breeds, but lots of smart breeds. Um, and he's really smart as a result. He's a rescue, like you said, um, hailing from Eastern Oregon, somewhere near Pendleton. Um, the, the folks at the Oregon Humane Society here in Portland thought he was a farm dog prior to being adopted by me, but he's adapted to apartment life pretty well, despite his size. We've almost <laughs> exclusively lived in studios, save for the period of time we spent in my parents' house in Ohio, but um, yeah, he's great. He's He's been a little bummed out the last couple months because he's had a shoulder injury that's kept us from doing the dog oh, park, yeah. but for the most part, he... Uh, he just chills out and kind of goes with the flow. Whatever we're doing, he's into. How old is he? He's now? very sweet. Um, he's just over three. He turned three in October. The beginning oh, really? Of October. I didn't realize. So he's actually pretty close in age to Odie because Odie is also three. Um, he turned three a couple months ago, but mm-hmm. we got him when he was about 10 months old. Again, a rescue from a shelter called Angels for Animals in Canfield, Ohio. They didn't tell us a lot about like his early puppy life before us because they're they have a lot of privacy things that they aren't allowed to disclose, but we sure. do know that he was at the local pound a couple times. I think he he's an escape artist, and he's going to find his way out from wherever he is. So I guess he probably escaped at some point, made it to yeah. the pound, like someone took him in, and then his original owners reclaimed him, and then probably, I guess, eventually surrendered him back to the pound where he was transferred to the shelter that we got him oh. from. Poor buddy. And, yeah, I mean, it's sad, but, like, you... If you know Odie, he's a lot to handle. <laughs> he's extremely yeah. energetic. So um, I don't know if they just had other dogs or cats or maybe small children that were a lot to have him around. But he is extremely friendly. Um, he's a little uh, reactive to cars and trucks. But <laughs> otherwise, he is very, very friendly with people and uh, other dogs. But he's a, he's a big mix of breeds. You wouldn't really be able to guess what he is just by looking at him, but he is probably more of a pit mix than anything. Uh, he's got some boxer mm-hmm. in him, some American bulldog, Staffordshire terrier, a little bit of chihuahua, which is really bizarre. <laughs> but <laughs> we will obviously post pictures of our dogs on social media this week or the week that it publishes. So uh, look out for those if you like seeing dog pictures and want to know more about the ones who like to shake their collars in the backgrounds of half of our episodes. Yeah. <laughs> If not, just or slurp their, bark behind us. Right, slurp right behind me out of their water bowl. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's always happening. <laughs> like during the quiz section when they finally get tired of sitting and listening to us. Yeah. So I just wanted to, I guess, talk about our dogs for a little bit because we are we are dog people and that's going to be the main focus of today's episode. I found this topic through... I don't even remember. I feel like I've heard about it on other podcasts I've listened to, but I've also just come across the story on some really, I don't know, interesting stories of history type articles, but it, yeah. it's not really your typical war hero, <laughs> but uh, <No. laughs> it, it should be fun and interesting and maybe funny at times. But I also want to talk about just the history of dogs kind of being involved and in playing roles throughout some of our more trying times in history. And I'm really just going to focus on two specific dogs before we get into our main topic, because, you know, we think of working dogs and we get that idea. And it's a pretty common thing to see working dogs. Like we get what service dogs do and police dogs and those kind of roles that they fill. But we don't necessarily know a lot of the specific dogs because some of them do have some really interesting stories. And I wanted yeah. to make sure that we highlight a couple of those because that's kind of what we do here is, you know, instead of generalizing the background people, but actually give a name and a face to some of these more interesting stories in history. So the first moment that I wanted to talk about is actually September 11th. Obviously, probably the largest attack and tragedy on American soil since Pearl Harbor 
Um, it's something that we both lived through. We were obviously very young at the time that it happened, but something that's fresh right. in our memories. And something that a lot of people don't know is the role that dogs actually played in September 11th. Yeah, I didn't know any of this. I mean, it, it makes sense, but it just wasn't something I thought about. Yeah, so specifically in New York City, at the time that the Twin Towers fell, there were more than 300 search and rescue dogs that aided in the months following to help dig through the rubble and try to find survivors and other things that might help us understand more about the situation. The actual role of these types of rescue dogs really wasn't a very commonly known thing or commonly recognized thing. They've been used for years and been involved in search and rescues in forest areas and other types of disasters like this one obviously not on such a grand scale as what September 11th was but it's not a new concept to use these types of search and rescue dogs but for better or for worse I guess this tragedy kind of elevated the role of search and rescue dogs in the minds of Americans following 9-11. It's really not known how much of an impact these dogs actually had in finding buried survivors of the attacks but just the media coverage of the dogs gave spectators some positive headlines during an otherwise tragic event in American history. So just you're seeing all these terrible headlines and everything kind of playing out, but seeing the dogs being involved and searching through the rubble is it's sad, but it's, you know, a little bit more lighthearted to look at than maybe, you know, all the carnage and the disaster that came with 9-11. On average during this specific tragedy, search and rescue dogs work 12 hours a day, 10 days at a time. And, Let's wow. be honest, a lot of this was unsuccessful searches, which really exhausted and discouraged the dogs. Their handlers actually staged fake, quote-unquote, successful finds for the dogs to keep them motivated in searching for the survivors. How did they stage these? Would they like? Would just one of the search and rescue people go hide and let the dogs find them? Or <laughs> I didn't get a lot of specific details on these like fake finds. I don't think they were necessarily searching for humans for these they might maybe got gave the dogs a scent of some kind of trigger item whether it was i don't know oh, an, I an object like a toy or some piece, piece of clothing or something like that and then they would bury it and allow the dogs to find it to keep them motivated so that they you know dogs are very repetitive and they're very conditioned by being rewarded and for these search and rescue dogs finding their target is in itself a type of reward So if you go for days or hours without ever finding what you're searching for, the dogs will eventually kind of just stop. So they needed to stage these so that the dogs could find something and feel like they are actually doing their job and achieving what they've been trained to do. Totally. So photos and coverage of the dogs actually inspired a boost in dog owners nationwide seeking search and rescue certifications for their own dogs or just making financial donations to search dog training organizations. Do you know, like, where can you get your dog certified? And if... You do know how much does it usually cost? How long does it take? Well, it's not like something that just anyone can do. Like you need to have very specific breeds and typically you want to train gotcha. these dogs pretty much from birth. It can take Oh, okay. It's it's almost like a full-time job education for both the handlers and the dogs. It could take weeks, months, or years of education and training for both the handlers and the dogs to get to the point where they could be a certified search and rescue dog. So we couldn't go get Barley and Odie certified <laughs> this week. I think week. you might have more success with Barley than I would with Odie. <laughs> Unless he's looking for squirrels underneath our deck. <laughs> but it, I mean, it's an expensive program, but it, it is obviously a, a necessity for police departments and for, you know, these types of disaster relief organizations. FEMA does a lot with training search and rescue dogs. You can seek out these certifications through organizations like the American Kennel Club. So it's a thing and people can do it, but typically you want a very specific type of breed that you can train from, from birth to become a search and rescue dog. Right. Typically more like your everyday pet, like Barley or Odie would be better to be certified as maybe like a emotional support dog, specifically one sure. that would go visit like hospitals. And that does take a lot of serious training. Like Odie is very sweet, but he could never go into a hospital because he would <laughs> not listen to right. me, you know, in every moment where I need him to be calm. But that's that's a need that even hospitals have. Like I, I work with the local children's hospital around here and they have a team of, I think six or eight dogs that go and visit the kids in the hospital. And they are looking for dogs to get trained to be that uh, just because they have a need for it. It's obviously not like necessarily right. caring the kids, but 
it is a benefit to be able to have that kind of emotional balance and support to have dogs visiting them in the hospitals. Yeah. So anyway, I'm going to get into our, our first dog that we're highlighting of today's episode. And this is one of the dogs that was involved in September 11th. It's a dog by the name of Tracker. He was a German shepherd and a partner of Canadian police officer James Symington. Tracker was born in Prague in 1994, but he joined the Halifax Regional Police in 1995 at the age of 14 months. And he actually worked at that department for six years. At that time, he discovered over $1 million in contraband, and he found missing people and helped arrest hundreds of criminals. Dang. Now, senior officials on the Halifax Police Department had a policy of euthanizing retired police dogs. And Tracker's handler... (laughs) What? Yeah, that that was crazy to me when I read that. And I, I mean... It, I think it sounds really bad to us dog lovers with regular pets, but I mean, some of these police dogs do go through very stressful training regiments and they go through a lot of years of stress and hard work. So I can understand the argument that it might be better for the dogs, like emotional state to not try to switch to, you know, civilian life for a dog that's sure. been trained to be a police working dog. But, you know, from the, the, dog lover standpoint it just seems like there's a lot of police dogs that could look for good calm homes after they've been through yeah that makes sense though i mean if a dog is work if a dog is used to working that much every day i I don't know that it could really i don't know that it would be kind to the dog to transfer it to a more right sedentary home life right well regardless symington refused to comply with this order to euthanize tracker so he took a leave from the force under claims of it being a hostile work environment, which of course Ooh. forced Tracker into an early retirement, which was in May of 2001. When Symington saw news of the September 11th attacks, and this was just sitting at home watching TV, he saw what had happened in New York City. He drove 15 hours with Tracker from Prospect Bay, Nova Scotia to New York. Wow. Tracker is credited with discovering the last survivor found at the World Trade Center, It was a woman by the name of Janelle Guzman McMillan. She was trying to climb down the steps of the South Tower when the building collapsed on her. She was trapped for 27 hours until Tracker alerted firefighters to her location. And then Tracker continued to search for survivors until he collapsed from smoke inhalation and exhaustion on September 14th. At this point, he and Symington returned home to Canada, where Symington was suspended from the Halifax Police Department for participating in the rescue efforts in New York City without permission. Simonson was later offered the opportunity to return to work, but he declined. I mean, I get that in a job like the police force that you need to have, I don't know, some semblance of accepting authority from your superior officers and obeying orders. But it's kind of insane that he was punished for offering his assistance. Yeah, I mean, I I totally understand. It's one of those things that like... I think there was a news story a couple weeks or months ago where some flight attendants like physically restrained a passenger who was cussing them out and like going after them and they were disciplined by the airline whereas people were like why would you they were doing their jobs they were protecting the other passengers so like I mean I think Symington deserves a lot of credit for what he did like he literally was in another country when he saw this disaster happened and he was like, this is something I can help with. And I, my dog is trained to help with these kinds of things. So he, yeah. he did what I would consider a very heroic thing to drive to another country and help yeah. in a way that he could. But then he was obviously punished for it because, you know, that's not what he was supposed to do by his employer. So I don't know. <laughs> it's just kind of like a, I understand why it was wrong, but also, like, he clearly did a very noble thing. Yeah. Anyway, Time Magazine recognized Tracker as one of the 10 most heroic animals of all time. He lived until April of 2009, and before he died, he was chosen for a cloning program. So his DNA was actually used to create five cloned trackers. And in January 2011, Tracker's clones were reunited with Symington who continues to train dogs in the field of search and rescue. That's cool. I don't have, I don't know anything about cloning or how it works beyond like a very rudimentary knowledge. Yeah. It does feel like kind of a a weird ethical area, but 
it's cool that Symington is still training these search and rescue dogs. And clearly, like, if the cloning is safe and effective, Tracker had the right genetic makeup for this. So if yeah. we can create more of these working dogs who are going to be beneficial and helpful, then it's a good thing, it seems like. Obviously, Tracker is just one example of the many dogs that helped in September 11th. But I wanted to highlight one of them as just kind of a cool story from one of those working dogs that we might not have known the name of or seen otherwise if you want to like get into some real emotional readings look up the hero dogs of 9-11 because there's some really cool stories but also some very sad stories of those dogs but you know if you're a dog lover something worth reading into yeah for our next canine highlight here we're gonna go way back in history because this is just a cool topic and this is the one i wanted to make the main topic of my future dog episode but you know when you go back in ancient history it's a little hard to find enough details especially when you're talking about a dog let alone a (laughs) like an actual historic person but the dog we're talking about is peritas the great which you can assume by his what is it middle and last name there is alexander the great's dog (laughs) peritas's breed is uncertain but he was often believed to be a molossus which is kind of like an ancient greek bulldog Although he's commonly depicted in mosaics as a greyhound. So that just might be a stereotypical way of drawing dogs and, you know, ancient drawings. But yeah, a lot of the, the way he's depicted in these stories make him seem like he must have been some kind of very strong, aggressive dog. But that's, yeah. I guess, probably why they aim towards the bulldog type, even though he's depicted otherwise. So there's two stories that exist as to how Alexander the Great acquired Peritas. Either he was gifted to him by his uncle, King Epirius, in northwest Greece, claiming the dog had attacked and defeated both a lion and an elephant. Or he was given along with 150 dogs from Sophites, a ruler in Punjab in South Asia. Sophites wanted to demonstrate the strength of these dogs that he was gifting by having the two weakest ones fight a lion together. Oh my god. One of these... (laughs) One of these dogs was able to defeat the lion by keeping a firm bite on the lion's leg until it succumbed to loss of blood. That's wild. What? (laughs) This dog, of course, would end up being Peritas. Well, I guess it's uncertain if either of those stories are actually true, but those are the two most famous stories of how Alexander the Great acquired his dogs. And since Peritas is his most notable and beloved dog, it's believed that one of those was Peritas. Legends around Peritas claim he was often at Alexander the Great's side during his military battles. One story claims that Alexander was trapped by Malian troops during a battle near India or Pakistan. Peritas fought his way through the enemy soldiers until he found Alexander, then continued to fend off the Malians until Alexander the Great's Macedonian troops could rescue them. This was a pretty common theme in the Peritas stories that, on several occasions, he saved Alexander's life. And... Often these stories were told to inspire bravery among the soldiers rather than being actual historical facts. So probably a lot of, you know, historical fantasy (laughs) in Peritas' story. Be like my dog. (laughs) It's still kind of cool to think that, you know, if Peritas really did save Alexander the Great's life, how history would be different if not for his heroic life-saving dog. Right. The sad end to this particular story involves Peritas being wounded by a javelin and then crawling to Alexander where he dies with his head in his lap. Alexander then named this conquered city after Peritas and built his tomb and a statue at the entrance to the city dedicated to Peritas. Hmm. And of course, to have some little modern connection here, Peritas actually appears as a character in the 2020 animated film Scoob where he is portrayed as <laughs> Scooby-Doo's distant ancestor. Of course. <laughs> Makes sense. It is cool that they have these little connections to dogs of history. Like, obviously, there's not that yeah. much to know about Peritas just because it, it is ancient history and he's not, you know, a human conqueror, but just man's best friend. <laughs> right. So I thought these were a couple interesting dogs to know about. We're going to get into our main topic here in just a bit, where we're going to learn about one of the most famous dogs in American history and a war hero. So we'll take a short break, and then we will get into today's topic. Wolf. It's everyone's favorite part of a podcast episode, the ad break. 
I'm sure everyone is tired of listening to us talk by now. Which is presumably exactly why you've subscribed to our podcast. To hear us talk. But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website, historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start. Though, please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly boneless episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more. We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags, stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards. You can suggest an episode topic, or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us. That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. All right, welcome back to our episode today, where we were talking about dogs. Obviously, this episode is going to be a little bit different than what we are, or what you are normally used to on History's B-Side, because we're not necessarily profiling a person, although we're profiling a dog. (laughs) So there's not so much like biography as much as just kind of like a cool story about one specific dog. So this one is going to be a little bit more... I guess narrative-based. Maybe not. Maybe it won't be too different. We're just talking about a dog instead of a person. Yeah. So, in the summer of 1917, while the 102nd Infantry of the 26th Yankee Division trained at the Yale University Football Stadium in New Haven, Connecticut, and I just realized what a run-on sentence this is, (laughs) but this uh, military unit was training at Yale University when a stray brindle puppy with a short tail wandered onto the field. Now, the breed of this very famous dog is uncertain, but it's believed that he was related to a Boston Terrier or an American Bull Terrier. We're going to obviously share some pictures of him on our social media feeds the week that this publishes. Honestly, I think he kind of looks like Odie a little bit, just with much smaller (laughs) ears, which if you've seen my dog, you know he has big ears. (laughs) Yes, he does. He's obviously some kind of like bull mix and Odie is more pit than anything, so very sort of similar body type and facial structure, I guess, but we'll definitely share pictures when uh, when this publishes. Now, nothing about this dog's life is known prior to this day, but it's believed that he was born in 1916, and he's not quite a year old when he's found. A 25-year-old private named James Robert Conroy, who was training with this infantry, was particularly fond of this puppy. He took care of him and kept him around the infantry unit and named him Stubby for his short tail and small body. (laughs) Stubby became the mascot for this infantry. He learned the bugle calls, the drills, and even how to quote-unquote salute by putting his right paw on his right eyebrow when he saw soldiers make a similar motion. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) He had a positive effect on the troops' morale and was allowed to stay even though animals were otherwise forbidden. In September of 1917, the 26th Division was set to deploy to France to join the front lines of World War I. Private Conroy smuggled Stubby in his coat and then hid him in the coal bin on board the SS Minnesota as they crossed the Atlantic. He would eventually be discovered by Conroy's commanding officer, but Stubby won over the CO by saluting him in the way that he had been trained and he was allowed to stay on the ship. <laughs> Please tell me there's a picture of him doing the salute. I didn't see one, but I will absolutely it. Google it and see if we can find one that we can post to our feeds because it, it just sounds amazing. Yes, it does. Now that he was free to roam the ship, Stubby became popular with the troops and was fashioned his own metal dog tags, <laughs> which is sort of appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Once in France, the 102nd Infantry began training with French soldiers in Neuf Chateau. But on February 5th, 1918, they moved to the front lines at Chaumet des Dames. Stubby remained with Conroy the entire time. Both were actually injured by German gas shells during a raid in March. They survived, but the attack left Stubby very sensitive to the smell of poisonous gas, which actually proved beneficial. 
When the infantry was again attacked in an early morning gas launch, most of the soldiers were still asleep. Stubby, however, smelled the gas, then ran up and down the trenches, barking and biting soldiers to wake them up and get them to safety. And this event led to Stubby receiving his first military rank, Private First Class, on April 5th, 1918. (laughs) This is awesome. I think it's really smart that, I mean, smarter the dog, obviously, but honestly, it seems smart to have one there because of the gas. So as an alarm system. Military dogs were not an uncommon thing. The American army was actually very lagging in training dogs to work with the army. Most other countries at this time did have dogs that would be with their units in battle. Yeah. What's really cool about Stubby and his story here is that he was not, you know, a working military dog. He wasn't trained to be that. He just kind of wandered onto the scene as a stray and adapted very well to military life, I guess. I like, I mean, it it resonates with me because we both, you know, (laughs) there it is. We both have rescue dogs. So it's not like, you know, obviously the, the search and rescue dogs from 9-11 were amazing and heroic, but they're dogs that were trained to serve that purpose. And Stubby was just kind of a, a random stray dog who turned into a hero. Stubby quickly became accustomed to the sound of rifles and heavy artillery fire. The 26th Division was in constant battle, participating in four major offensives and 17 engagements, and their 210 days of active combat were more than any other American infantry division during World War I. On April 20th, Stubby was wounded in battle near Seshprey. 3,000 German troops attacked and overwhelmed a group of 600 American soldiers, which resulted in the killing of 81 Allied troops, 424 wounded, and 130 captured soldiers. Stubby was hit in one of his front legs by a shell fragment and had to receive medical treatment. But oh. he continued to boost morale among the wounded soldiers, and by June he had recovered and returned to the front lines. I'm surprised he made it through all of this like war and carnage right? and even getting hit. Like a surprisingly <laughs> tough and resilient dog. Yeah. Odie would be a little baby if he got hurt by something. <laughs> yep. If you stepped on Barley's paw, he'd be like, I'm done. I'm going home. <laughs> Rita's going to yell at me when I say that he would be a baby and even suggest him getting hurt and going to battle. Stubby developed the ability to identify soldier uniforms, which was beneficial in two ways. Number one, he could locate wounded ally soldiers who had fallen in the no man's land. He would listen for the sound of English and then run to the fallen soldier and bark until paramedics arrived, or he would help lead the soldier back to safety. So he was, in a way, his own type of search and rescue dog. Yeah. But his other ability to identify soldier uniforms was beneficial because he learned to differentiate German uniforms from the Allies and sniffed out potential spies. Just the sight of German uniforms was enough to trigger Stubby to bite at their pant legs. And one Associated Press account says, quote, It was found necessary to tie Stubby up when batches of prisoners were being brought back for fear that trouserless Germans would be reaching the prison pens. <laughs> In the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, Stubby received full credit for capturing a German spy who had been hiding in nearby bushes, mapping out Allied trenches. The German soldier tried to bait Stubby, calmly calling out to him, but Stubby barked at him to alert his infantry, so the German spy took off running. Stubby chased him, eventually biting at his legs to bring him down and holding him in place until other U.S. soldiers arrived. For capturing this enemy spy, Stubby was promoted to the rank of sergeant by Colonel John Henry Parker. (laughs) Parker was the same commanding officer who gave the orders that allowed Stubby to remain with the 26th Division. He was a stern, decorated military leader and a veteran of the Spanish-American War, but it was said that Stubby, quote, was the only member of his regiment that could talk back to Parker and get away with it. (laughs) I also read that Stubby, between his two now- military rankings is considered the first dog in american history to receive a military rank we'll talk about later about how like official that actually was but something that was noted in the stories about him that he is the first dog to receive a military rank i mean if you can salute then i feel like you should be considered (laughs) for a military rank for if you're a dog i guess because well right (laughs) It's, it's a different bar there that's true Sergeant Stubby was also popular with the local civilians. When the U.S. Army 
recaptured Chateau Thierry in the Champagne region, a group of local women made the dog a coat. Episode callback. Of course, this was <laughs> before the Champagne resistance that we talked yes. about few weeks ago (laughs) the military medals that stubby earned were pinned onto his coat including his sergeant rank designation two wound stripes which came from separate incidents of grenade shrapnel to his chest and leg the iron cross which belonged to the german spy that he had captured and future post-war medals that he would receive later in life now stubby's story is obviously very interesting and heroic it's worth you know mentioning that some of these stories are likely exaggerated a bit through retellings in the media at the time and just throughout mm-hmm. history. His story is just, you know, like the 9-11 dogs, a positive light in an otherwise really harsh and violent war, something that has really never been seen before in history. So it was a, a story that could be highlighted in some kind of good news coming back from the war that was portrayed in American media at the time. Right. Some of the details of his heroics are conflicted even in Conroy's own letters and documents of the events. There's a really interesting display about Stubby in the Smithsonian Museum that includes a scrapbook that Conroy put together with a bunch of pictures and letters and other documents related to the stories of Stubby. So some of them might be a little bit exaggerated, but it is cool to have that firsthand account of, you know, Stubby's handler and best friend kind of talking about what he went through in the war as well. Yeah. And along those lines, his title as sergeant probably wasn't actually an official military rank so much as just kind of an affectionate nickname that they called him Sergeant Stubby. Right. But what we do know for sure is that he was a stray dog who accompanied the 26th Division through some of the worst American engagements of World War I and became a bit of an American hero and a celebrity as a result. At the conclusion of World War I on November 11, 1918, Sergeant Stubby remained with his division for several months as they worked to demilitarize the area. Of course, I just wanted to note that November 11th is today recognized as Veterans Day because that was essentially the day that we reached a peace at the end of World War I. So Mm -hmm. I thought it was kind of appropriate that this is my episode that's airing closest to Veterans Day this year. While still in France, Stubby met President Woodrow Wilson on Christmas Day and the two apparently, quote, shook hands (laughs) which is funny i one of the articles i read talked about how you know rank or your status did not matter to stubby did not matter to any dog dogs don't care who you are sure yeah (laughs) thought that was funny and interesting that he doesn't even know that he's meeting the president this time right just another human right (laughs) stubby and his handler who is now colonel conroy arrived back to Camp Devons, Massachusetts on April 29, 1919. Later on, Stubby would participate in the 1920 Republican National Convention, where he met future President Warren G. Harding. He also led parades around the country. He received lifetime memberships to the American Legion and the YMCA. (laughs) Apparently, the YMCA said that so long as he lived, Stubby would always have a place to sleep and allotted three dog bones a day. (laughs) In 1921, he received a gold medal from the Humane Education Society from General John Pershing, and later that year, Conroy would attend Georgetown University Law Center, where he brought Stubby along, and Stubby became the school's official mascot as a predecessor to their present-day Hoya Bulldogs. I was wondering this, since he was discovered at Yale, is is there any connection between Stubby and Yale using the Bulldog as their mascot as well? You know, that's actually a really good question. Um, but I looked it up and Yale's mascot is actually named after a different bulldog named Handsome Dan. (laughs) Handsome Dan. Yeah, I guess a, (laughs) a former student athlete, I think it was like football and crew bought a dog from a blacksmith for $5 and just brought it to the school and he became the school's mascot, (laughs) but his name was Handsome Dan, different bulldog. I kind of wish Sergeant Stubby and Handsome Dan were friends. <laughs> I don't think their uh, lives overlapped. This was in no, like, prob- 1889. Yeah. Maybe briefly, but probably not at the same time. So Conroy would later serve in the Bureau of Investigation, which was a precursor to the FBI. And of course, he brought Stubby along with him everywhere he went through the end of Stubby's life. Stubby would meet his third president, Calvin Coolidge, at the White House in 1924. He did eventually die of natural causes in 1926, and 
I don't know how you feel about this. I was a little undecided myself, but his taxidermied <laughs> his taxidermied remains are on display at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, where he is still wearing his metal adorned coat. So I don't know. I personally don't love the idea of taxidermy across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like I guess an ethical thing. It's just a personal preference. But I guess everybody has throughout history found different ways to preserve human bodies after death and other bodies after death. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's cool in the sense that like, it's a good reminder of a fairly cool story, (laughs) but like if you're going to portray him as like an American war hero, it's, I feel like it's not very dignified. Not that like, I mean, like it's obviously a dog and not a soldier, like an actual war hero, but I mean, if he did do these heroic things where he saved lives of soldiers from gas attacks or from taking down spies or whatever, rescuing them in the no man's land, like he is in a sense a war hero and it just feels kind of weird to have his body on display in a museum. (laughs) Right. When he died, he received a half page obituary in the New York Times, which was actually more than a lot of celebrities and notable figures at the time would receive. (laughs) Several monuments have been erected to Stubby across the U.S. and Europe, and he was the subject of several books, a cartoon strip, and even a 2018 film titled Sergeant Stubby, an American Hero. Yes. Have you watched it? Have you seen the film? I haven't. I watched the trailer for it when I was doing the research for this, and it it seems really cute. I think it's not like on any streaming service. I don't think you can like rent it or buy it on Prime, I believe. I told Rita we need to watch it. It seems like it's good, and I think like the reviews were pretty good, but it was kind of a box office flop because it came out at the same time of one of the Marvel Avengers movies. So yep. well, it was just really bad timing for it to come out. <laughs> yeah. I also wanted to end with this little piece that I found while researching this. It was an interview with Conroy's grandson, whose name was Kurt Dean, and it was in the lead-up to the release of the 2018 film. His grandson was kind of retelling and keeping Stubby's story alive. So they asked him a couple questions that I just thought was really interesting to hear almost a, I guess not first person, but someone who was very connected to the story of at least Conroy, Stubby's handler. Yeah. So the main question posed to Conroy that was retold by his grandson was, was Stubby like a working military dog or was he more just like a mascot for the 26th division? And this Quote from his grandson says, My grandfather was always clear. He was a service dog. He gave the troops comfort. He gave them support. He used to run through the trenches and warn them about gas attacks. He used to go outside of the trenches and into this sort of no man's land between the U.S. and German trenches and stand by soldiers who had been injured until the medics could come and get them. So I think that does, I mean, obviously it's being retold, but it does kind of confirm some of the stories of Stubby's heroics. He also explained that Stubby wasn't always a model soldier like the military dogs use today that are very highly trained. They said that a lot of the times the most common question asked by his infantry was, where's Stubby? (laughs) So this quote goes on to say that Stubby would disappear for weeks at a time and the guys would kind of have no idea where he was. And there was this whole fear that he had been killed or whatever. And my grandfather would say he always came back with his head held high and his stubby tail up in the air and knew right where my grandfather was. It was amazing, and these troops wouldn't stay still. They were moving around, but he always came right back and knew exactly where my grandfather was. That's so funny. (laughs) He also told a story that on one occasion, Stubby had run off and was sort of adopted by French soldiers, but he did, of course, eventually return to Conroy in the 26th Division. (laughs) It's incredible that he's, like, running around on a battlefield successfully and not getting hurt or killed, but it almost sounds like more like a cat than a dog as far as like leaving for weeks at a time and finding another family (laughs) and coming back i mean dogs can be like that too if but what's interesting is like i mean i said earlier odie's an escape artist and if he got out of our backyard like i know he knows our neighborhood well enough that he probably could make his way back home but like that's because he (laughs) yeah if he wants to (laughs) but that's because he knows the area so well like stubby is in completely unknown areas And the fact that he was just always able to make his way back to Conroy and the 26th Division is kind of impressive. Yeah. And then just kind of as an end cap, the last thing that Conroy's grandson mentioned was that his grandfather never adopted another dog after Stubby died. 
His quote says, I used to always ask him why he never got another dog, and he made it very clear to me that Stubby was so special and so unique that he just couldn't imagine another dog being able to fill that role. I think that's just a common feeling among dog owners. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about Barley. I don't, I like thought briefly when I moved back out here and went back to work that I would consider getting a second rescue to keep him company at home. But then I was like, I don't know. I gambled once with a rescue and (laughs) hit the jackpot. And I don't like, not that I don't think I couldn't take care of another dog, but he's so good that I don't know that he would be, the, the next dog would be as... I don't know. Like he says, special and unique. Well, that's the thing. Like, I think you, you have fond memories of every dog you've ever owned. I mean, I obviously do. Sure. Not that I've had a ton, but we've had a couple dogs in the past. And like Odie, I know he's not going to live forever, but he's always going to be like the first dog that I was solely responsible for. Like when we had dogs right. in the past, I was a kid and lived with my parents. And as much as I like thought I was taking care of them, I know it was most of it was on my parents. <laughs> but like Odie is my dog and well, mine and Rita's, he'll always be the first dog that we had together. Uh, I mean, we have obviously a cat too, Walnut, but Odie will be like the dog that we got right after we got married. He was our our pet right. together. And as much as he drives us crazy, and <laughs> we yell at him every day because he's, you know, not the best listener and super crazy and terrorizes the house, but he's our dog and we love him. And yeah, I don't know, it just makes you sad to think about like dogs are your best friend for a while and you don't necessarily want to replace them and i think that's just how conroy felt about stubby yeah so i know we usually end our episode with like a a sometimes brief but sometimes not discussion about whether or not the person is a good person but since i think we can both agree that most if not all dogs are at heart good good dogs good souls good boys i wanted to change up the question a little bit Uh because i've often wondered if I were to be, I don't know, if I were to be attacked or in trouble or in danger, if Barley would be able to defend me, and and if he, if he even would, you know, if he has the instinct to, to be aggressive like that. But do you think that were somebody to, like, enter your house or, you know, be aggressive with you in public, do you think Odie would jump into action or do you think he would just lick them and sniff them (laughs) i don't know because so how is barley with taking treats um he's a little bit like will he bite your fingers off no not not definitely not he's more energetic about it than i think most people would prefer but i think that's just more due to his size than any sort of like aggression so the thing with Odie is like he i don't want to say he's going to bite you because he'll put his mouth on you, but like he doesn't bite. He'll put his mouth all the way around your hand and you'll like feel his teeth brush against you, but he doesn't bite down. So he's like, he's not aggressive at all. So like, I can't imagine him being aggressive with a person. And like, sometimes we'll joke when he is like putting his mouth on us, we'll be like, ow, 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 that hurts. Just to see if he'll like react to us feeling like we're in pain and he just doesn't stop. But I think he knows that we're like not in serious danger. So I don't know how he would really be like, if, if we were in a dangerous situation or something like that. But I will say one time we took him to the beach up at Lake Erie and there was just a woman like walking by. She wasn't like drowning or anything, but she was just kind of like thrashing around the water as she walked past. And Odie, who I told you is like afraid of the water. Like he would not go near, he would not go near the, the coast as the waves were coming in. He would like kind of back away from them. But when he saw this woman kind of like thrash around as she walked past he lunged like to almost try to save her because he thought that she was like Mm. drowning so i I do feel like that's just kind of in his uh instinct i guess but yeah i don't know (laughs) i think he would try to save us i don't know that he would be successful (laughs) right yeah barley used to try to pull on us he would even like nip at our calves and ankles which was kind of annoying as we got into the swimming pool (laughs) Cause he, he didn't like the pool, so he didn't want us going in it. So if you were like walking down the stairs into it, he'd like try to get you, pull you back. But I I also don't know that he would be a good like guard dog necessarily. He's a good deterrent <laughs> just cause he's yeah. huge and his bark is very low and deep. 
that's the thing. Like Odie has a very loud bark, and like that's when you can tell that he has pit in him when he barks. And yeah. it's not like mean. It's just he's he's loud and it's booming. And like I could see if someone were trying to approach our house, he might scare them off before they made it inside. Yeah. Just because if you don't know how friendly he is, he is kind of intimidating. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the not not the use I get out of barley, but a perk I suppose <laughs> is that I don't feel like there's many people that would continue to I don't know continue to enter the ho- the home once hearing his bark or seeing him until we like publicly say on a podcast that our dogs will never hurt anyone <laughs> even if they I sound did not angry. say he will never hurt you I said I don't know if he would <laughs> <laughs> that's fair all right well are you ready for your dog themed quiz sure let's uh see how it goes all right we'll be right back all right welcome back as many of you know we like to end every episode with a short quiz for our host to see what he's learned in his research and also to give our listeners a chance to flex their knowledge play a little trivia game and this week we're going to do some dog trivia which i feel like you'd have a good chance of getting at least one of these correct (laughs) at least one that's what i aim for well there's only one that's just a general dog question or a general pet question i guess and then one is about one of the dogs on today's episode so i think you'll i think you'll do okay One's multiple choice, so I feel like that that at least gives you some (laughs) breathing room. So for your first and, I think, easiest question, uh, a lot of people think that cats were the first ones to be domesticated just because they're depicted so much in ancient Egyptian culture. But do you know which was domesticated first between dogs or cats? I mean, the way you phrase that makes me think it's dogs. <laughs> Maybe. I probably would have guessed cats, but since it's the It could topic, be a trick let's, question. Let's say dogs. You are correct, and you're correct <laughs> that I kind of gave the answer away with that question, but um, it is true that cats were domesticated in ancient Egypt, but they were first domesticated in the Near East around 7500 BC, which is just under 10,000 years ago. Uh, dogs, however are believed to have been domesticated somewhere in northern Eurasia between 14,000 and 29,000 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, So as early human tribes, hunter-gatherers encountered wild wolf packs, the friendlier of the wolves would slowly start to congregate around these human tribes, realizing that they got the scraps of food if they weren't too vicious. And then eventually (laughs) humans started using them as, you know, tools and and guides because they could hear and see and smell things that we couldn't and we provided them an easy source of food that's the earliest form of positive reinforcement conditioning that yeah scraps of food if you're not too vicious (laughs) right i feel like we need uh to revisit our alfred wallace get james back on here to talk about how different those dogs were from the tiny little frou-frou curly-haired purse dogs that people have today yeah, right? The, every dog you've ever met, their distant ancestor was just a less mean wolf. <laughs> <laughs> it was the wolf that chose to raid the garbage instead of eat the humans. <laughs> and then we have Odie and Barley, who just lay around sleeping <laughs> all day. All right. For your second and kind of goofy question, but I thought this is hysterical so I, I couldn't leave it off. So we talked about Alexander the Great's dog, Peritas. And the name Peritas is also used for a specific dog supply. Can you name the type of supply that Peritas is used for? That is named after Peritas. Um... And if you can't guess, I will give you a hint. <laughs> I mean... The only thing that's like sticking in my head is food, like dog food. Is it Purina? It's not Purina. It's specifically called Peritas is the name of the... I thought you were saying like a brand that was like based off the name. No, it is. The brand is called Peritas. And it is a little 
I want to say unapropos. It's a little ironic, I suppose, given Peritas's, you know, story of heroism and strength. I don't know. Is it like a, like a dog bed, like sleeping? It's not. So I found them on Amazon. Peritas dog diapers, disposable oh diapers gosh. for dogs, <laughs> which I thought was so funny. I didn't even know they made diapers for dogs. There's a picture on the package of the dog wearing the diaper, but I just feel like of all the dogs you could have named a diaper after, why choose <laughs> Alexander the Great's military dog? Because <laughs> he's an old old time dog, and that's yeah, you know, it's like senior dogs that need the dog diapers. <laughs> Peritas, clad in his disposable diaper, saved Alexander <laughs> the Great from a lion. <laughs> Don't make fun of dogs that need that. I just think it's funny. <laughs> All right. For your slightly more serious and last question. We discussed today World War I's canine hero, but World War I wasn't the only war to have a canine hero. During World War II, an American soldier found a dog named Smokey in an abandoned foxhole in the New Guinea jungle. And at four pounds, she was a fully grown What? So this is the multiple choice. Smokey was a fully grown Shih Tzu, Yorkshire Terrier, Pug, or Chihuahua. So this wasn't the question I thought you were going to ask, because as soon as you mentioned World War II, I saw that the most decorated dog in World War II was named Chips, and I was like, mm -hmm. I don't know a lot about that story, but I'm going to remember that name just in case that comes up as yeah. a quiz question. <laughs> uh, but I don't remember anything about Smokey. So where was Smokey found? Smokey was found in an abandoned foxhole in the New Guinea jungle. Mm, I don't know enough about dog breeds to know where they come from. This would have been in the South Pacific. Yeah, I'm going to guess that it's not a Yorkshire Terrier because that feels like a British dog. Um, is it? A, I'm going to guess Chihuahua. Chihuahua is incorrect. So oh. Smokey was, in fact, a Yorkshire Terrier. Oh my gosh, and I wanted, the one I, I said a lot to being wrong. <laughs> right. I wanted to ask this because it gave me a chance to tell the story and to make the point that military dogs don't necessarily need to be big and strong or aggressive. Um, so like I said, Smokey weighed all of four pounds when she was found. And at that point, she was a fully grown adult Yorkshire Terrier. Uh, after she was found by Corporal William A. Wynn, she traveled in Wynn's backpack for the next two years of World War II, and during that time the duo served in the South Pacific with the 5th Air Force and flew a dozen air and sea rescue and photo reconnaissance missions. So she was a flying dog. <laughs> in her military service, Smokey managed to survive 150 air raids on New Guinea and endured a typhoon at Okinawa. One of Smokey's greatest accomplishments, however, was made possible by her small size. When military engineers needed to build a critical airbase for Allied warplanes, the team needed to run telegraph wire through a 70-foot-long pipe that was only 8 inches in diameter, and soil had filled most of the pipe, oh. which meant the engineers would be exposed to a three-day dig exposed to bombings. Except that Smokey, with her small size, was able to fit in the partially filled pipe and finish the task in minutes. Oh my gosh. That's super impressive. Yeah. Smokey also holds the honor of being the first recorded therapy dog. Her healing efforts first began at the 233rd Station Hospital in New Guinea, where she would visit injured soldiers coming back from the Biak Island invasion. Her work as a therapy dog continued for more than a decade, long after she and Wynn left New Guinea for Wynn's hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. Really? Yep. That's cool. A little local, local connection. Maybe that'll be a future topic if we ever do a uh, some kind of local story near Cleveland. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, little, little Yorkshire Terrier just running <laughs> around on airplanes. Well, now I feel bad for making fun of the little frou-frou purse dogs that descended from vicious wolves. Yeah. Still still badasses, even when they're small. Still annoying, though, when they're yappy. They are. I have a pug living on either side of me, which you've heard in previous recordings. <laughs> and Man... They're just not quiet. Get a real dog. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, thanks again for listening to another episode of History's B-Side. 
obviously uh this one's a little bit different because we didn't feature a person but dogs can be heroes and memorable historical figures as well and you know we're dog people you always hear them in the background so i wanted to find a cool dog to talk about in history yeah if you have any comments questions or feedback please feel free to email us historiesbside at gmail.com or follow along on social media at historiesbside thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week woof History's B-Side is an independent, listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service. And follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History's B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcast at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your hosts, Matt Molino and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side.